0: This will be the part two of Spotlights on Creation, where we take a closer look at some of the areas of nature that really showcase God's creativity, His power, and His design. And we're going to start out with a very important topic, because a lot of the animals that I'm showing you today, and in most of my creation science presentations, are predators. When we look at all the animals out there, why am I not just talking about the cute bunnies that eat grass? I'm talking about the hawks that come down and eat those cute bunnies. And we know that God didn't make it that way. So it's a very important concept to really understand how sin has affected the nature that God has created. Without this understanding, we will forever be kind of confused when we talk about the animals out there because we'll have a hard time figuring out why animals are killing each other and still well-designed by God. So that's where we're going to start our program with this afternoon, Sin in Nature. In the beginning, God created the earth and all plants and animals. Everything was perfect and worked together flawlessly. No death, decay, killing took place in the balanced world where Adam and Eve lived. But then they sinned, and pain and death began. Satan now had permission to twist and corrupt the world to make life evil and unpleasant. If left unchanged, the world would have spiraled into chaos, and soon all life would have perished. But God did not allow that to happen. He remade life to fit the new conditions, making the best of the situation. Many plants became poisonous or were covered by thorns. This is dangerous and annoying to us, but is useful protection for the plants. Toxic sap, deadly chemical compounds, and dagger-tipped leaves all serve to deter animals from eating the plants. Some animals became parasites, living inside or on other animals. Others became scavengers or outright killers, eating the flesh of other animals. This is actually more widespread than most of us realize, since the eating of other animals include birds that eat insects, whales that eat krill, and uh, cormorants that eat fish, and most ocean life. Humans were just as damaged as the rest of the world. We are subject to illness and death and pain. But even worse, we have inherited a nature that is prone to selfishness and pride and a host of other temptations. Our personal relationships with God and other people are a sad echo of what existed in Eden. However, God had a plan B for the world's problems. To prevent all life from collapsing, drastic changes to many plants and animals became necessary. Plants were changed to survive in habitats that never existed in Eden. Deserts now have cacti and drought-tolerant trees. Prairies have grasses that can survive frequent burning. Swamps have plants that can survive constant flooding. Conifers can survive cold and snowy winters. Some people assume that the predators, animals that eat other animals, originated with Satan's efforts to pervert life. But predators actually are needed in a death-filled world. Without predators, plant-eating animals would soon run out of food and starve. By eating other animals, predators perform a vital role in our sin-cursed nature, preventing disease outbreaks and overpopulation problems in every ecosystem. History has shown that wherever predators are killed by humans, the animals they normally eat will rise dramatically. Soon the system becomes unbalanced and mass starvation results, as there are too many plant eaters feeding on a limited supply of plant foods. This is why North America has more deer now than ever recorded before, despite the massive sport hunting efforts of the last century. Sport hunting has actually failed to reduce deer numbers in the long run, leading to huge winter starvation, regular disease outbreaks, and unpleasant deer encounters with gardeners and farmers and cars. All of these problems stem from our replacement of natural predator control with our own artificial methods. Predators are the main control mechanism God chose to maintain nature's stability. When we look at predators, sometimes we don't realize how different they are from plant-eating animals. Predator teeth are built to cut and tear, not grind and browse. Even the mineral content of their teeth are quite different in order to make it possible for them to break bones. Predator intestines are much shorter than herbivore intestines in order to digest their food properly. And even their minds are different. An herbivore looks at a leaf or grass blade and sees that that is food. A predator looks at the same leaf and is uninterested instead turning to another animal as food. All of these are huge differences that must have changed when Adam and Eve sinned. For if these changes happen gradually from natural forces, then evolutionists are right. But evolution is incapable of turning a vegetarian animal to a meat-eating one, for we never see it happening today. So all of these changes had to happen immediately, and only God has the power to do something this dramatic. Satan could not do so. He lacks the power. But God knew these changes were needed for a sin-damaged world to survive, and so he recreated a huge segment of life. But sin is only a temporary evil that will soon be destroyed. Thanks to Christ's perfect sacrifice, Satan and sin will soon lose control of this world. All the corruption will be burned away, and Jesus will make a new earth. The redeemed will experience unending peace and joy. Nature at long last will be restored to its original purity. No longer will plants need special defenses to avoid being eaten. No longer will animals compete for limited food or eat each other. Isaiah envisions this happy day in chapter 11, verses 6 and 9. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. For God's faithful all pain will be forgotten and no tears will again fall. But until that blessed day comes, we must live in this world and deal with the results of sin. We must fulfill our role in God's creation, doing the job He has ordained for those made in His image. In Genesis, God gave man dominion over the earth and other species that inhabit it. This has been used by sinful man to excuse any act of destruction, cruelty, or negligence that we may wish to inflict on the other life forms that God created. But dominion does not mean tyranny, dictator, 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 sorry, excuse me, dictatorship, or exploitation. It means stewardship. It meant stewardship in the Bible when applied to God's dominion over us, and it meant stewardship when applied to our dominion over the earth. The animals' lives are in our hands, and it is our dominion responsibility not to increase their suffering by our selfishness and greed. What we eat, what we wear, how we entertain ourselves, and how we make money all have an impact on God's animals, and we need to act out of love to do the least harm that we can do. The delicate systems of the earth are easily broken by our actions as well. When we put profit first, we end up losing habitat and inhabitants both. This often seems irrelevant to our structured lives, but in fact we are hurting ourselves as much as we are damaging nature. When we poison the land and water and air, we are making life harder and more unpleasant for ourselves. Our own health is important to God as well. He has given us free choice and this means our actions have consequences. When we damage our own bodies through neglect or actively poisoning ourselves with the food and drugs that we consume, we are unfaithful to the talents God has entrusted to us. Sin is the reality of our world until Jesus returns to restore everything to the original perfection. Nature is still beautiful, and the interrelations of the plants and animals amaze us with their complexity and their diversity. Nature is God's second book of inspiration, revealing his care and planning for all of his creation. But we have even greater wonders to study and enjoy in the new world to come. Let us be always faithful to our Father's will so that we will be ready for that day to come soon. And now we start again to spotlight the groups of nature that really are fascinating. And we're going to start with some of the strangest of all, the fungi. Fungi are one of the strangest and most interesting forms of life in God's entire creation. But what exactly are fungi? The parts of fungi that most people recognize are called mushrooms. We are very familiar with mushrooms, but most of us are unaware of how unusual they really are. When you look at a mushroom, what are you seeing? The colorful above-ground structure is only the tip of the iceberg. It is the reproductive component of fungi, the source of spores that will drift on the wind and start new fungi growth elsewhere. A large bracket shelf fungus will produce 20 million spores a minute, and will do so for up to five months. Each spore can start a new fungus if it lands on the right spot. The actual fungi are the hidden tendrils that grow through wood and soil. Concealed from view, these white tendrils grow and spread through every available source of nourishment. Some fungal threads complexes cover 40 acres and can live over 1,000 years. Next time you see that mushroom in your yard, remember that you are probably surrounded by fungal threads extending in every direction. Fungi live everywhere, but most are impossible to tell apart visually as they all look like white threads. But when the time comes to reproduce, a fungus will grow a structure that is so unique to each species that it can be used by naturalists to tell them apart. The mushrooms we see on the ground and rotting wood are comparable to an apple or a pine cone on a tree, just a temporary growth whose only function is reproduction. But then what purpose do the fungal threads themselves serve? What exactly does fungi do? The only job of fungi The only job of fungi is to break down the dead cells of other organisms, usually plants, and turn them into nutrients that can be then used as nourishment. Fungi have no chlorophyll and cannot make food from sunlight like a plant. They rely on dead organisms for food. They are the most important recyclers of the world, crucial to turning useless dead matter into vital nutrients. Without the decomposers, dead leaves and wood would never decay and would pile up uselessly, letting nothing new grow. So fungi must exist or life on Earth today would be impossible. Let me repeat that. Fungi must exist or life on Earth would be impossible. But what is the origin of fungi? Did it exist in God's original Eden creation? If not, then where did it come from? Fungi could be some, could could fungi be some Eden plant form that was changed by Satan or natural forces after the fall? The answer is no. Fungi are not plants. Fungi are not related to plants. Fungi are not related to animals. Fungi are a totally separate branch of life. If you've ever heard anybody tell you that a mushroom is a type of animal, they're wrong. The cell structure of fungi is foundationally different from plant cells and there is an important reason for this. Cells of all plants are made from cellulose. This is what makes a plant a plant. But the cells of fungi are made from chitin. This is what makes a fungus, a fungus. The reason for this becomes clear when we remember what fungi does. Fungi breaks down plants into usable nutrients. How? Fungi have an extremely powerful acid that that digests cellulose. This acid is perfectly designed to, to dissolve plant cells. But what keeps the fungi acid from damaging its own cells? The acid dissolves cellulose perfectly, but it doesn't dissolve chitin, which is what makes up fungi cells. So fungi are immune to the acid that they produce. If fungi weren't foundationally different from plants, they couldn't function as they do. Fungi are a different form of life from plants in every way. The fact that fungi are usually hidden and unnoticed is irrelevant. Fungi could not exist in Eden, as it would serve no purpose, and would have no nourishment before decay began. If fungi didn't exist after the fall, something else would be needed to do the same job. Satan would not create fungi, even if he could. Why would he want to let new life grow by cycling, recycling the nutrients? Fungi couldn't evolve from plants any more than birds could evolve from jellyfish. So the logical conclusion is that fungi were a new creation by God to fit the changed conditions of a sinful world. Just as thorns were added to many plants, and animal scavengers became a necessary part of nature. What does this tell us about God and his creation? God's perfect plan... His perfect creation was broken and damaged by sin. But God did not abandon his world to destruction. He reworked the natural world to allow it to continue to exist despite the presence of death and decay. God never abandons us to sin either. He works with us and helps us in every way that he can. Until the day when we can totally be restored to the original ideal. God is always there. So fungi are a special creation of God to make nutrient recycling efficient. Satan has twisted some fungi to be harmful, such as he, just as he has twisted some plants and animals. This is why some fungi damage us directly, like athlete's foot or ringworm. But most fungi do useful work in nature usually unnoticed by us, except when it grows its reproductive parts. Some of these are brightly colored in amazing shades of blue, yellow, orange, green, and red. Some are so tiny as to be needing a magnifying glass to see. Others spread in huge shelves. Some puffballs are nearly two feet across. Some rare mushrooms even glow in the dark with an eerie green glow. Many animals eat mushrooms, from slugs and snails to beetles and squirrels. Many mushrooms are poisonous to us, but harmless to other animals. Some mushrooms attract flies with a foul odor and offer them sugar as a reward for spreading their spores. Underground truffles are dug up by flying squirrels in North American forests. One of the most unusual relationships in nature is that between fungi and trees. As seedlings sprout and grow, fungi will attach themselves to the roots of the growing tree. They serve as extensions of the roots, absorbing nutrients from the surrounding soil more efficiently than the tree can by itself. Without the fungi, the tree will be stunted, and more easily killed by disease. New trees must be joined with fungi from nearby well-established trees. When forests are clear cut for lumber the helpful fungi are destroyed. New trees planted to replace the cut ones are never as healthy and grow far more slowly since the delicate symbiosis has been shattered. Scientists have found that three-fourths of all plants have symbiotic partnerships with fungi. This shows how finely tuned God's intricate natural world really is and how easily it can be broken by our carelessness. So in the weird and colorful world of fungi, we have on display God's creation at its most amazing. Next time you see a mushroom in the woods, Remember that God put it there to help us, and all of nature to survive until the world is perfectly recreated without any death or decay." And we're going to stay uh, in the non-animal world with one more segment, because now we're going to look at one of the strangest of all, carnivorous plants. Now. There are some ideas that we take for granted when we look at nature. Plants are the sedentary foundations of life. They produce the oxygen we breathe and become food for animals. By contrast, the animals are the active, noisy consumers of plants. That's just the way it works, right? But there are exceptions to every rule and nature likes to hold surprises for those who look deeper for special treasures. Can plants feed on animals? This seems totally backwards. Which plants eat animals and how could that have happened? There are several distinct groups of carnivorous plants with about 600 individual species, but they are by far the minority of plants. Most plants get their energy through sunlight. Sunlight is converted to energy by green chlorophyll in the cells of plants. This is in fact the foundation of all life on Earth. Some plants are parasites that take their energy directly from other plants since they have no chlorophyll of their own. Mistletoe is a familiar example of the parasites, but there are many others. Without green chlorophyll dominating, we get bright red snow plants, white or pink Indian pipes, and yellow squaw roots. But carnivorous plants are not parasites. They get energy from the sun like regular plants, But they also go to the trouble to catch live prey as an extra food source. So what forms do they take? The most widespread and diverse are the pitcher plants. The ones found in tropical jungles usually grow on vines hanging from trees, sometimes high off the ground. Their leaves grow into upright pitchers with a hood over the mouth. Water collects inside and sugary nectar draws insects to the rim. When insects crawl too far inside, they fall into the water and drown. Some pitchers grow on the ground and can be enormous, holding two-thirds of a gallon of water. They have been known to drown small rodents and eat them. To prevent bursting from overfilling, some have drain holes below the rim. In temperate bogs of North America, pitcher plants grow on the ground in dense clusters. Many have transparent windows in their hood to help convince an insect that it is safe to enter, really. Some have nectar-lined mustaches that guide prey inside. An individual plant can live for decades, but new pitcher leaves are always growing up to replace the older ones. Tall flower stalks rise high above the traps since the plants don't want their insect pollinators to be lured anywhere near the dangerous traps. Some tall, straight species are called trumpets and are more open at the top with only a small hood. All use water to drown their prey. Slippery, waxy walls keep the insects from crawling back out. Downward-pointing hairs also prevent escape. That then digestive enzymes break food down just like our stomachs do, except much slower. One of the strangest sights to see in nature is a colorful Pine Barrens tree frog peering out of the mouth of a trumpet. They have learned that trumpets are great insect lures and wait inside to catch the insects themselves. Some spiders specialize in building a web near the mouth, catching insects that are drawn by the sweet nectar smell. Other insect predators can also be found close by, but they have to be careful not to be caught themselves. Butterworts are like living glue traps. Flat leaves with curled edges are covered with sticky paste that traps any small insect crossing them. The insects die and are digested and absorbed by the leaves. This sort of trap catches only the weakest prey, as anything stronger can easily pull away. The sundew is similar to the butterworts, but are much more active killers. There are 180 species of sundew worldwide. Their leaves have long hairs tipped by drops of glue. When they snare prey, the leaves slowly curl inward. This further entangles the doomed insect and speeds its digestion. Some have spoon shaped leaves, while others have long thread leaves that can reach a foot tall. Each individual leaf can curl and reset about three times before it withers and is replaced. Like most of these dangerous plants, they have tall flower stems to keep their helpful insect, insects safe as they pollinate the sundew's tiny blooms. Many sundews have red highlights. With their glue drops glistening in the sun, sundews can be very lovely plants. Bromeliads grow throughout moist tropical habitats, usually on the limbs of trees. The larger forms collect a central pool of water where their leaves meet. Many insects and frogs use these pools for their own needs, often to raise their own young. But for one bromeliad growing high on an isolated plateaus in Venezuela, entering its pool is quite hazardous. Any insects caught in the pool will be digested just like in a pitcher plant. Bladder warts are entirely aquatic. They have a tangle of tiny pods that float just under the surface. They are found in still water since they have no roots to anchor them. Usually they are only noticeable when they send their yellow flowers up above the water into the air. Their pods are tiny vacuum traps with hair triggers When micro life forms bump a hair, the trap is sprung, sucking the animal inside and slamming the door. After a couple hours of digestion, the trap resets and awaits the next meal. The most famous of the killer plants is the unique Venus flytrap, found only in the coastal sandy plain of the Carolinas. It is now rare from illegal collecting. Its leaves are like hinged jaws with long teeth and several scattered trigger hairs. When a fly touches the same hair twice or two different hairs within 20 seconds, the trap closes. Digestive enzymes are secreted and the fly trap has a meal. Eventually the leaf will reset but can only be reused a few times. The movement of the trap is one of the fastest by any plant closing in one-tenth of a second. Scientists are still studying the hinge mechanism of this amazing plant to understand how it works. So what can we learn from these crazy predatory plants? They all live in nutrient-poor habitats and make good use of the extra nutrients that insects provide. But many other plants live right next to them and don't use the methods that these plants use. Evolution has another awkward task of explaining how and why so many unrelated plants all evolved independently to turn the tables on the animals. Being carnivorous is just an interesting variation that God chose to employ. They wouldn't have been that way in Eden, as no death occurred there. But after the fall, many animals were changed into predators. A few plants changed as well, giving us an interesting difference to study and marvel at. We see again how the extraordinary is achieved not through random chance, but through God's amazingly diverse and specialized natural powers. Now we're going to head back to the animals. We've looked at the plants, we've looked at the fungi this morning, we looked at flowers, and now the rest of the time we're going to be focusing on the animal world. And we're going to start out with another of the extremely popular groups, the birds. No group of life captures our imagination and affection like birds. These winged masters of the air live everywhere we do and beyond. We can enjoy them in our backyard or travel many miles to find a rare species that we have always wanted to see. We marvel at their songs and colors and wish that we could join them when they leave the ground. But do we truly realize how extraordinary God made them? Let's look at the miracle of the birds. All birds share certain features in common, starting with feathers. These special structures are made of keratin, the same substance that God used to make reptile scales and your fingernails. Feathers are composed of lightweight rods and veins that are held together by microscopic hooks. A single feather can have a million hooks. Feathers give birds outstanding insulation that is more efficient than fur. A house sparrow can maintain a temperature of 106.7 degrees Fahrenheit thanks to its thousands of feathers. A chicken will have about 8,000 feathers. But a swan will have 25,000 feathers. Each feather can be brightly pigmented in an array of colors and patterns, giving some birds the most glorious wardrobes found in nature. They sport colors and hues only matched by some snakes, fish, and amphibians. Or they can be camouflaged to match their habitat, letting them skillfully hide from danger. Most birds can fly, but getting into the air and staying there are two different challenges. A body must be efficient and well oxygenated to stay aloft for very long. Air sacs extend a bird's lungs throughout their body reaching even into their bones. A mammal's lungs absorbs only 20% of the oxygen that they breathe, but a bird's system absorbs nearly all. Birds have amazing gifts to suit their special needs. Here are a few examples. Eyes of songbirds can shift from a telescope to a magnifying glass and back again instantaneously. Some raptors can see ultraviolet light to help them hunt. To hold onto a branch, perching birds' feet lock closed while they sleep, keeping them from falling off even on windy nights. Pigeon parents regurgitate a type of nutritious milk that they feed to their chicks in the nest. Owls have ears in uneven positions on their skull to give them heightened directional hearing of their prey. Bar-headed geese fly twice a year over the Himalayas, reaching altitudes of 25,000 feet. Hummingbirds fly backwards, sideways, and even upside down, while their wings beat at 50 to 70 times per minute, per second. Griffin vultures have been seen flying at 37,000 feet. That's seven miles above the ground. Some birds have exceptional intelligence. Crows and ravens are able to solve multi-step problems that confound most mammals. Alex the African Grey Parrot has proven that he understands the mental concepts of shape, color, size, quantity, and substance. Parrots in general are very resourceful and clever. The kia of New Zealand's mountains are playful pranksters that will steal the food off your campground table or rip the weather-stripping off your car, just for fun. (laughs) Grey jays must must remember thousands of scattered locations where they have hidden food. Without this incredible memory, they would starve, but thanks to God's gifts, they thrive. All birds lay eggs, in which baby birds develop until they are old enough to hatch. The egg contains a supply of nourishment to sustain the developing chick. Eggs laid in dark holes are usually white, while those in open nests are various colors and patterns, some quite lovely. The egg size usually matches the size of the parent. The extinct elephant bird egg was 30,000 times larger than a hummingbird egg. Here is one next to an ostrich egg for comparison. Once the egg hatches, the chicks can be either well-developed or helpless. Most parents must continue to feed their chicks until they are independent. Puffins carry fish from the ocean to their young in a cliffside burrow. Black Swift parents fly up to 600 miles a day in search of insects. Their little tiny chick sometimes waits for up to three days for their parents' return. A Phoebe was seen bringing food to a nest 845 times in one day. Songbirds usually feed insects to their young in huge quantities and are often extremely important in reducing insect numbers. Some birds, like ducks, raise lots of young, and some will even adopt other babies in need. Others, like cranes, focus all their attention and care on a single chick making sure it reaches adulthood. Not all birds can fly. Some are very large, even bigger than most mammals. Cassowaries are colorful residents of rainforests that eat fruit and spread the seeds, making them the keystone species of their tropical habitat. Emus survive in barren and inhospitable outback landscapes of Australia, running at up to 30 miles per hour across the desert. Many penguins spend 85% of their entire lives in the water, only coming ashore to nest. Some island birds, including many rails, have lost flight entirely since they don't have predators that they need to escape from. They can be quite tame and even trusting. Birds often have truly amazing behaviors. Green herons use bait laid on the water to catch fish. Trogons swallow wild avocados whole in their jungle homes. They're not as big as the ones we eat here in California, just so you know. (laughs) Bee-eaters nimbly catch stinging insects in flight, then smash them against branches to remove their stinger. Frogmouths freeze motionless in plain sight during the day, peering out through notched eyelids. This lets them keep their eyes closed and still be able to watch for danger. Rosy finches forage for ice worms and stranded insects on glaciers and snowfields. They explore mountain crags where few other animals can survive. Albatross spend most of their life at sea, only landing on the water to rest and feed, eventually returning to land and breed. Many birds, both on land and sea, migrate long distances over the course of a year. They fly towards the tropics or down from mountains to lowlands to avoid the cold of winter. Some move erratically after fresh food supplies or methodically follow recent rainfall. This often means thousands of miles of travel through all the weather conditions and over many terrains. The Arctic tern travels from pole to pole, flying around 50,000 miles every year. They can cover a million and a half miles in a lifetime. Tiny birds fly over seas and mountains, going days without stopping. Some birds can travel massive distances and still end up at exactly the same place that they started at the year before. How do birds do all this? Extensive research has focused on how they navigate with some success. It turns out that they use a variety of tools and each species is somewhat different. But we still don't have all the answers and migration remains one of the miracles of God's master plan. Humans have envied birds as far back as we can remember. We have tried to mimic birds by building many types of flying machines, most terribly unsuccessful. In the last century, we were finally able to understand what birds do in terms of lift, thrust, and pitch. We invented machines that mastered these elements very well, but so that we too can fly. But we have never actually been able to copy bird flight itself. We keep trying, but somehow the miracle of God's perfect design, displayed by the birds, continues to elude us. How could blind evolution design all the many elements needed to make flight possible? Did a bird really arrive one day on the evolutionary scene and just jump off a cliff successfully? The complexities involved in flying are too great for random mutation and chance to make flight possible. Do we truly realize how great a miracle it is for a huge bird like a bustard or a tiny bird? like a warbler to be able to fly. It took humans thousands of years to work out a mechanical solution to what the birds do without planning. To say that the selfish genes that evolutionists foist upon animals are capable of generating flight is ridiculous. Only a creator that loves variety and grace can account for living beings this special. God really made a masterwork when he designed the experts of the air. And now we're gonna look at another group of animals, the reptiles. Now in most evolutionary presentations, they'll do reptiles first and then they'll do birds because everybody knows that birds evolved from reptiles. I chose to reverse that just to be annoying to that. Is there anything Christians can learn from the scaled animals that we call reptiles? Reptiles are specialists of warm habitats found in both land and water. They have amazing abilities and physical gifts given to them by God to help them survive in many places where other animals struggle. When evolutionists invented their theory of animal development, they assigned reptiles a low rank on the tree of life. Reptiles are claimed to be a primitive group of animals with unsophisticated bodies and behavior. But as we examine reptiles, we find them to be complicated animals with advanced skills. We find that what evolution tells us is wrong. There are many myths people believe about reptiles. They are called cold-blooded, but actually most of the time they are as warm or warmer than we are. They absorb heat from their surroundings rather than generating it themselves. This means they are inactive in cold conditions. But the benefit of that is that they require very little energy compared to animals generating their own internal heat. So a reptile needs only 10% of the food that a mammal of the same size needs. This lets reptiles survive in habitats where mammals struggle. All reptiles have watertight skin covered by dry, hard scales. Some have rough scales, some have smooth ones, but no reptile is ever slimy. Most people have a vague feeling that no reptiles except turtles are to be trusted. This is unfair as all reptiles are wonderful creations of God, but turtles do have great charisma. Carrying their home on their backs, turtles rarely worry about predators penetrating their thick armor. Land turtles are called tortoises. They vary from adults only a few inches long to island giants over 500 pounds. Box turtles tightly close their shell with hinges that allow them to be safe from predators. Most turtles are found in the water. There are a few sea turtles, but most are from freshwater lakes and rivers. Pig-nosed turtles lay eggs on sandbars that won't hatch until the eggs are immersed in rising river water. The babies wait for days inside the eggs until the eggs are underwater, then pop out in a few seconds and swim away. Crocodiles and alligators are found in warm, fresh, and salt water. A flap in their throat prevents them from drowning when underwater. They are excellent predators. They go through thousands of teeth in a lifetime, constantly replacing any that have worn down. Also, they are devoted mothers, who guard their nests and babies carefully. Fast or powerful, lizards are found in almost every warm habitat. They communicate using bright colors or gestures. Many lizards regrow their tail after it has been lost to a predator, letting the lizard survive another day. Geckos have toes with tiny hairs that bond at the molecular level with whatever surface they are walking upon letting them climb walls and hang from ceilings. The lizard-like tuatara's live over a century and can go a minute between each breath. And if you think reptiles are unfeeling, what about the shingle-backed skink? They mate for life with one partner and mourn if their mate is killed. In the Hebrew of Genesis 3 verse 1, we are told that the snakes created by God were the most prudent animals of his creation. They were also incredibly beautiful, and this is why Lucifer invaded a snake while tempting Eve. When Adam sinned and all nature was cursed, snakes were given a special symbolic curse. God made them crawl on their bellies, which tells us that he originally made them with legs, Wings or both? But to compensate, God gave snakes some of the most incredible abilities found in nature. Like all reptiles, snakes have scales that protect their bodies, but their belly scales are special. They hook onto surface rough spots and pull their bodies forward smoothly and rapidly. In this way, snakes can traverse sand, climb trees, burrow, even glide through the air, God has also given them excellent swimming abilities, and many are found in fresh or salt water. Rather than being a helpless animal struggling to function, snakes are now movement specialists that can do things no other reptile can. Several snake families have heat-sensing organs on their face to help them catch warm prey in the dark. Snakes use their long, delicate tongue to smell, God gave snakes a special organ in the roof of their mouth that reads scents collected by their tongue. Some snakes can go years without eating. When they do have a large meal, they unhinge their jaws into four parts to be able to swallow their food. Their internal organs enlarge to help digest at each meal, with their heart increasing 40% and their liver doubling in size. Snakes can vary from giant pythons and anacondas 30 feet long and 300 pounds, down to tiny ones 4 to 5 inches long as adults. Some rely on speed to escape danger. Others use camouflage to hide. Some rely on bright colors to surprise and distract predators, like this mud snake hiding her head underneath her coils. Hognose snakes put on a dramatic acting show, ending with fake convulsions. Then they appear to die, convincing most predators to leave them alone. Many snakes bite to defend themselves, but some are so mild-mannered that they will never bite, even if provoked. Snakes are most famous for having venom, but only a minority have this special ability. Those with venom use it for catching their food and defending themselves. Very few snakes are aggressive to humans unless attacked first. Only about five people are killed by snakes in North America each year. So let's think about this. Everybody is afraid of snakes. Everybody's afraid of being bitten and dying from snake bite. Five people in America per year. How dangerous is that compared to other incidents that might occur to you? Well, let's try a few. How about vending machine deaths? An average of 13 per year vending machine deaths in North America. Don't shake that vending machine. It's gonna fall on you. How about falling icicles? 15 people on average in America killed by falling icicles. But it gets even worse than that. Cows. Cows. 20 people per year are killed by cows. The the, the snakes are not out to get you. The cows are out to get you. Think about it. And finally, in this little survey of weird deaths in America, the number one result is champagne corks. 24 people on average in North America die from champagne corks every year. I don't want to hear about how dangerous snakes are. I want to hear about how dangerous vending machines and champagne corks and cows are. That's really where the danger lies. Come on. Anyway, I thought that was fun. Scientists have proven that humans are never born with the fear of snakes. Society teaches us to fear most reptiles, especially snakes, due to the minority that can be dangerous. But this fear of all is unfortunate, as most species are totally harmless to us. Snakes are just as important as every other part of God's creation. They are one of the most important predators of small rodents in nature. Places that have killed the native snakes have huge increases of rodents, leading to disease outbreaks and food destruction. Even venomous snakes are crucially important. You don't want them by your back door, but in the wild they should be left alone to do the job that they're built to do. Even though the Bible often uses snake imagery to represent Satan, Christ also used a snake to symbolize himself to the Israelites. Snakes were preserved by God on Noah's ark, along with all the other land animals. And Isaiah tells us that snakes will be recreated in the new earth, once again part of God's perfect world. So snakes exemplify the care that God bestows on all of his creation. He gave them gifts that make them perfectly suited to survive in this world. All reptiles are amazingly sophisticated and never fit the evolutionary definition of being primitive. The colors on reptiles are as vivid and glorious as on birds and butterflies. Both reptile behavior and their bodies are as sophisticated as anything we find in mammals. God puts so much variety into reptiles. They are living witnesses of God's love of the unusual and testify to the greatness of His creation. Amphibians. For creationists, the vertebrate animals known as amphibians are examples of God's creativity and design. Their bodies and behavior are gifts of God to help them survive in various moist habitats. They have amazing skills and complex social interactions. Evolutionists say that amphibians are unsophisticated bridges between fish and reptiles. But when we examine the unusual and exotic amphibians, we find these claims to be far from reality. The one trait that all amphibians share is moist skin. It is permeable to the surrounding air and water, letting them absorb oxygen through their skin. But this means that they have to stay near fresh water or in moist habitats, and they can never enter salt water. Very few live in cold climates, as they cannot generate internal heat like birds and mammals do. Frogs and toads are the most familiar forms to us, as we often see or hear them in ponds or in our backyards. There are very few physical differences between frogs and toads. Usually, these are arbitrary names applied to very similar animals. But they all have many traits in common. They leap, sometimes enormous distances, by using strong back legs tucked under their plump bodies. To catch food, they have a tongue that flips forward to nab insects. Sticky saliva helps catch slippery prey. They can't chew their food, so their big eyes help them swallow. When they blink, their eyes sink down to help force a mouthful of food down their throat. Many species have amazing calls used for courtship and display. Each has its own unique song that only its own kind will respond to. They inflate throat sacs to amplify and resonate their calls. A chorus of singing frogs or toads with throats inflated is one of the most unusual sights in nature. Panamanian Golden Frogs wave their front arm at each other in territorial displays. This silent combat is truly a civilized way to settle differences without any violence. Wood frogs have been given the ability to freeze solid in winter, thawing out in spring with no ill effects. Spadefoot toads live underground during the dry season. They emerge during temporary rainstorms to breed and lay eggs. Before the ground dries and hardens, they dig back down and return to their long sleep. Poison dart frogs have defensive toxins in their skins. Any predator who tries to eat them will be poisoned. Fortunately, their bright skin colors help warn predators to stay away. Frogs and toads can be tiny or huge. The smallest are fingernail-sized, like the glass frogs and toadlets. These are wonders of miniaturization with all the organs and abilities of their larger relatives. The largest are grapefruit-sized, like the cane toads and the horned frogs. These heavyweights either aggressively scarf down insects or wait in ambush for passing prey. Salamanders have bodies that look like lizards, but they lack scales and can never live in dry habitats. They start as aquatic larvae that closely resemble the adults. Some, like sirens, water dogs, and mud puppies, never transform into air breathers. They retain their gills their entire lives and never leave the water. Newts are different from other salamanders in that they have dry skin and travel widely in the open. They seem unconcerned by danger because they have toxins in their skin, ensuring that they are not eaten. They warn potential predators by having bright colors of orange, yellow, red, or white. Some salamanders live most of their lives underground like moles, emerging only rarely to travel to breeding areas. The marbled salamander migrates many miles in large groups to the pools where they were born. After laying their eggs, they return to their underground homes and wait until next year. Lungless salamanders are the most varied group, especially abundant in North America. These small species do not have lungs at all, but breathe entirely through their wet skin. They are often extremely colorful and have unusual courtship behaviors. Cave salamander are found in cave mouths and tunnels, living their days in total darkness. Slimy salamanders secrete gluey latex to discourage predators. Salamanders also vary greatly in size. The smallest are the pygmy salamanders. These fragile dwellers of Appalachian spruce forests reach only two inches long and can be dwarfed by a small millipede. The largest are the giant salamanders of China and Japan. These can reach five feet long and spend their entire lives in cold mountain streams. Extra flaps of skin increase the surface area, letting them breathe underwater without coming up for air. So in the quiet world of the salamanders, we see God's love of the unusual and exotic. The the least known group of amphibians are the Sicilians. They, They have no limbs, and the smallest look like earthworms, but the largest can reach nearly five feet. About 200 known species live scattered around the tropics. Nearly blind, they dwell underground as expert burrowers or are aquatic. When we look at the complex life cycle of amphibians, we find as dramatic a miracle as anything we find in nature. Amphibians lay eggs that usually hatch into aquatic larvae. These young breathe with gills and stay underwater until they are big enough to become adults. Then their bodies change dramatically. From breathing water with gills, they must now start breathing air with lungs. Often their digestive system changes as well. The young tadpoles of frogs and toads grow legs and lose their tail. These are huge changes. Massive cellular reorganization is taking place, all while the animal must continue to eat and breathe during the transformation. How does this sort of multi-stage transformation evolve? How can it slowly develop over millions of years? At what point does an evolving animal split into a multi-stage life cycle? This process is too complicated for random chance to produce. This applies to all animals that have a multi-stage lifestyle, such as butterflies and jellies. Evolution is adrift when it pretends to account for the complexities and problems in this area. These wonderful little wetland jewels are fragile compared to other animals. Because of their porous skin they are very susceptible to pollution and infections. Dangerous fungi species accidentally transported to new areas by human activity are lethal to frogs and toads. Entire species are being wiped out as the fungi works its way through remote jungles. Many species around the world are dying from causes we barely understand. These gifts of God are being lost and we are having little success saving them. Let's not forget the hoppers and swimmers and walkers that God has made. Over the years, science has come to understand a complexity in the amphibian world that doesn't fit the evolutionary theory that this group of animals is a simple, transitional group. Yet evolutionists still claim that proto-amphibians crawled out of the sea to become the first primitive land animals. But when we look at the amphibians themselves, they tell us something different. They are sophisticated both in body and mind. They transform from young to adult in miracles of transformation, unmatched in other vertebrate animals. They have complicated parental and courtship behavior. They are very successful in wet habitats, often able to function well in and out of water. So we find that God's designs are just as perfect in amphibians as are His designs in the rest of creation. When God made the amphibians, He created some of the most amazing aquatic life we have on Earth. We truly have a wonderful God that the animals give glory to in every gift they display.